in this series of desiring the glory of God, we've used several times the metaphor of the, the sun, the sun in the sky, as kind of a metaphor uh, for, for God and how to think about the Lord. And we're not saying that the sun in the sky is God. Obviously, it's, it's not. But there are some similarities that we've kind of noticed, especially talking about God's, God's glory. Because the sun is, is glorious. It is, it is bright. Uh, it is magnificent. Uh, it, it, and its glory shines out. It, uh, uh, the rays of the sun uh, emanate from it. And so in some of those ways, the sun is a fitting metaphor. We've also talked about the fact that we as Christians, we realize that we revolve around God. He does not revolve around us. Most of the world thinks that everything in the world revolves around uh, ourselves, that we, each of us, is the center of our own universe, our own solar system, and everything, in, and God is here to serve and to please us. Because that's the wrong way. We've got to flip it around. God is the center, and he is at the center. So we've talked a lot about uh, this metaphor of the, the sun. Today, I want to talk instead about the moon. The moon, maybe you've seen it. Uh, it's up there in the sky. Not really in the sky. I mean, it's beyond the sky. Well past our, the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, it's out there about uh, 240,000 miles away from the Earth. And the moon is up there. It's, it's bright in, in the sky when you have a full moon. And the moon is made mostly of basically rock and metal. Surface, a lot of rock. There's a metal core, uh, mostly iron. There's other things in it. That's what you have there. There's no water on the moon. Uh, very, very thin atmosphere. Uh, the moon is still pretty big. Of the 200 and plus uh, moons that are in the solar system, our moon ranks as the fifth largest, uh, but it's not as big as the Earth. The diameter of the moon is 27% of the diameter of the Earth. So to put this in a different way, if the Earth was a basketball, the moon would be about the size of a tennis ball for comparison there. And the, the moon is, is pretty far away. Another way to visualize how far away it is, I think this is helpful, if you took the basketball, if that's the Earth, and you put it right under the, the basketball net, and then the moon is the tennis ball, you take that out to the, the three-point line and put it there, and that's how far the moon is away from the Earth, about 30 Earth distances, Earth diameters away from the Earth. So it's kind of far, and it, it, it's out there. So we, we have the moon. Uh, it's, it's up there. It, it, it's big, but its volume is only 2% of the Earth. The surface area of the moon is actually slightly smaller than the surface area of Asia. Uh, but it's still, this is a, a big, impressive rock that is orbiting and going around uh, the earth. Now, Genesis, in chapter 1, it says that God made two great lights and he put them in the sky. He's talking about the sun, he's talking about the moon. And one to govern the day, one to govern the night. And when we realize, okay, yeah, the sun gives light during the day and the moon gives us light uh, during, during the night. And they also mark seasons and times and uh, have those purposes. Uh, but we realize, too, these are two different kinds of lights. And I want us to think about this because, uh, you know, even the ancients knew there's something different about the sun and different about the moon. Uh, but when we think about the sun in comparison to the moon today, you know, it's not just that the, the sun is uh, a lot bigger. I mean, that is definitely true. Uh, if you had the earth was the size of a basketball in that comparison, 
the, the sun would be something like uh, at least like 100 feet wide and 100 feet tall. Okay, you couldn't even you know, fit it in here. The, the sun is, is massive. You could fit a million uh, plus Earths. I think it's like a, one million, 300,000 Earths inside the sun. So the sun is really big. And also the sun is a lot further away. You know, the, the moon is about a quarter million miles away from the Earth. The sun is 93 million miles away from the Earth. So about, you know, 400, you know, give or take, the, the distance away. But it's so big, and that's why in the sky they look like they're basically the same size. You know, it wouldn't have to be that case, but that's just, that's just how it works. But the big thing I want to draw our attention to as we think about the moon is, like I said, it is made of rock. It is made of, uh, you know, there's metal in the core. The moon is not on fire, okay? The moon is not burning. It is not like the sun where it's a bunch of just uh, nuclear explosions uh, emanating light. The only reason that we can see the moon in the sky is because the light of the sun is bouncing off the moon. It is reflecting it. And that's why there are times when you don't see the moon at all. Because based on how the sun is, is positioned, that some, sometimes you just see part of the moon or a crescent of it because the other side isn't lit up by the sun, and so you're only seeing part of it. The moon does not have natural light of its own, but the sun does. You don't need to shine anything onto the sun to get it to, to, get it to light up. It, it produces its own light. So here's my big point for today's message, is that we as Christians be the moon. How are we supposed to be the moon? Reflect the sun. And we're going to see this in this passage. It doesn't talk about the moon, but biblically we are supposed to reflect the glory of God. That's been our theme in this message. We're to reflect the glory of God. And specifically, it's going to talk about reflecting not the sun of the sky, but the son of God, Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about that, and uh, as, as I do, before I, I want to read this section of 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 3, verse 4, all the way to the end of uh, chapter 4, because I'm going to pull a few things out of this, but it, it's such a glorious section of Scripture that I, I just want to be able to read it. And I hope you're blessed by all of it, um, and that way you can see these things in context. So let's read God's word together here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's going to be talking about the new covenant that we have in Christ, salvation through Christ. We're not saved through the, the old covenant, the, the Ten Commandments. We're going to see that shows us our sin, but it doesn't save us. We needed Christ to come and to die on the cross and to rise again for us to have uh, forgiveness. Verse 7, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, the Ten Commandments, came with such glory... Notice all the time in these passages that it's going to talk about the glory of God. Came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, 
the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, at the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul continues, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into your presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. We spend time just meditating and thinking about that passage. But here are a few things that I want to draw out from this. As we, as we kind of wrap up and pull together this series about the, the glory of God and finding our, uh, our, our heart's desire in him and his glory, and recognize that doing this gives him glory as we do this, I want to talk about three areas and then how we should be like the moon and how this fits in with our, our calling and what God has for us. And the first that I want to talk about is the idea of worship. That this impacts how we worship. And that reflecting God's glory, well, first of all, it glorifies God. It brings glory to him as his glory is reflected off of us. Again, we think of this metaphor of the, the moon in the sky. And we recognize that uh, the moon does not have its own light. It does not produce its own glory. Uh, it does not shine forth. It, it needs something to light it up. It's just a reflector. That's what it is. And as we read that passage in Second uh, Corinthians, there are many places we saw that it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. He's the one that gives it to us. And, and we, we reflect it into the world and we reflect it back to him as well. And it shows his greatness. It, it shows his power. And that's why he even works through, uh, through jars of clay. You know, a bunch of clay, like uh, things that are not worth very much. But God works through us to show that it, it doesn't come from us. It comes from him. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I think there's a way that you think about the, the moon and, you know, it, it is bright, okay? I mean, it's not as bright as the sun, obviously, but if you have a full moon, I mean, you can still see outside. You can see pretty, pretty well, actually. I mean, it's giving a lot of light. But you think this reflector, you know, is 93 million miles away from the source of light and it's still catching enough of this that it can, it can light up your, your backyard at night. This shows that this must be reflecting from an awesome light source that is out there. I mean, if we go out at night and we, you know, get all of our iPhones and flashlights and shine it up at the moon, you know, if, if there's not a full moon out there, we're not going to be able to light up the rest of it. You know, we don't have enough light, but the sun is throwing out so much light that just even catching a little of it and bouncing it back, it's pretty glorious. And that helps us realize not how glorious the moon is, but how glorious the sun is that's lighting up the moon. And so when we let God's glory bounce off of us into the world and back to him, it is not to show how glorious we are, but to show how glorious he really is. And that's the purpose of everything. We might see his glory and people would realize this. And so we do this, we do it through, through praising the Lord. I mean, that is part of it. We're called, to, we're called to praise. And it's not just from our lips, but from our hearts that we're called to praise. Now, one thing I want to think about is, you know, we're called to praise God as part of our worship. And this is something that uh, we, we've talked about C.S. Lewis a few times and used some quotes by him. But he said when he was, there was a time he was not a Christian and then he was a young Christian. And he, he wrote a book called Reflection in the, in the Psalms. And he talks about how 
there was a point where he's looking at Scripture and realizing, it keeps saying, you know, that we're to praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you know, rejoice in him, be glad in him, all these different things. And if you think about it, okay, if the Bible is God's word, which it is, and the Bible is telling us to praise the Lord, which it does, then ultimately God is telling us to praise him. And C.S. Lewis said there was a time that it struck him as kind of wrong. He, he described it that it seemed to him that it was like, quote, a vain woman seeking compliments. You know, oh, just aren't you going to you know, tell me about my hair? Isn't this nice? Oh, notice, you know, like you're fishing for that. And uh, to, 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 uh, so I'm not just offending. Uh, it'd be like a pastor. You know, what do you think of that sermon? How do you like that? You know, kind of fishing for that. Okay, thank you. You, you liked it. Thank you. I was looking for that. But we all do that from time to time. But he said it, it seemed like God was like fishing for compliments. And it seems like that should be beneath God. That's not something, you know, it seems tacky when we do it. Why would it be any different with God? Then C.S. Lewis realized this, and this is a great quote. He says, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing, about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes that enjoyment. It is, the, it its, it is its appointed consummation. The point he was making is that when you truly you know, delight in something, there's a part, it, you just can't help it. You just end up praising whatever it is. And he gives us examples. People, you know, praise their, their, their favorite game, their favorite sports team. They, they praise the, uh, the, the, the significant other in their life. Uh, other things that they, they value and that they love, it just spontaneously happens. And there's things if you enjoy, things of art or things of, of beauty, there's something we want, to, we want to talk about and we want to communicate them. It's not just that we want to uh, see it and receive it, and okay, that, that's good, that's part of it, but there's something about being able to talk about it and share it and praise it uh, to other people or to praise it to that you know, person, to tell them, you, you are so beautiful, you are so wonderful, I, I thank God for you. It, it happens naturally, and it also is part of, the, part of the whole process. It's the fulfillment of this. It's part of the enjoyment to be able to, to give that praise. And so when God tells us to praise him, it is not merely God saying, you know, fishing for a compliment or just because he deserves it, he does deserve it, but it also, it completes our heart, what needs to happen in here, in giving him glory, finding enjoyment and satisfaction in him. It just happens naturally. Jonathan Edwards said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. 
when those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. And another place in uh, reflection on the psalm, C.S. Lewis states, to fully enjoy is to glorify. And that's when we say that if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it's we glorify God by enjoying him forever. This, that's, these two things, have to, they happen together. We give him glory by finding our delight in him. And so this you know, command to glorify God, this is not a, not a hefty burden. It's a, it's a command for us to find our ultimate satisfaction and delight in him. And it also gives him the praise. It gives him you know, the glory. It lifts him up and lifts him high when we do it individually. And we also do it together. We're called to do it together as well. This means that the true worship, we said it doesn't require a voice box. It's not about, you know, the sound waves that you produce. It's not about, uh, you know, that you know, if you had a sore throat, you wouldn't be able to praise God because it comes from the heart. That is ultimately where it comes from. And this also means that the true worship can be done, you know, 24-7. It can happen around the clock. It doesn't just have to happen here when we're gathered together, although we are called to gather together and to do this t- together. But it happens all the time because as we go through life, you can always be valuing God, treasuring him, finding your satisfaction in him. And even as you find your satisfaction in other good things, you give him the thanks for that. And he receives the glory. We can serve him in our callings, uh, whether you're in the church or whether you're at your job as well. There's all these ways and we can do it for him and for his glory with our hearts fixed upon him. So you can glorify God 24-7 by, by praising, by enjoying, you know, and serving him in everything that you do. Say serving, because oftentimes serving is used in the scriptures, another way of saying, uh, to, to, to worship. And well, serving idols, it means that you're worshiping the idols. And when we talk about, I think there is something we say that one part of way to describe worship is serving to please God. And it does please God. But here's the thing we need to remember too. Don't serve God as if you are giving God something that he lacks. Don't serve God with the mindset that God really needs me, you know, and if he didn't have me to serve him or to praise him, he would just dry up. When people thought, you know, the Greek gods, you know, they disappeared because people stopped worshiping them and they needed that praise and they just shriveled up and died. That's not what God is like. He doesn't need us. And the Bible straight out says that as well. Paul says in Acts 17, 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If you serve God that way, if you try to serve God, God that way, really you're glorifying yourself. Because you're like, God needs me. Good thing he has me to do all this stuff. Now, on the other hand, we don't want to be a bunch of just takers. You don't want to be like a black hole in the existence, in, you know, the existence that, you know, God, give me, give me, give me, and I'm just going to suck it up and I'm never going to do anything. Uh, I'm just receiving, receiving. I think the way that we need to think about it is that we are giving back to God something that he gave us. C.S. Lewis, to use him again, he describes serving God like a, a, a father giving his uh, child a sixpence He's in Britain. This is a form of money, okay? So a small amount of money. 
So he gives the child the sixpence. The child goes out and buys dad a present with that money. And then he gives it to dad. Dad is still pleased. God is, the dad is, is happy to receive this from his child. But as C.S. Luke explains, we have to realize that the dad is sixpence, none the richer. He's receiving back what he gave. There's, there's a band named Sixpence, None the Richer, and that's where they got their name from. And I think it's a great way to think about it. When we're giving to God, we're not giving something he needs, we're, we're reflecting back to him. We're giving back what he has given us. And I see this in Hebrews 13, 20-21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, okay, may God, may he equip you with everything good, so that you may do his will, so he's equipping us so we can serve him, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. That's how you think about how you serve God. That we are not, uh, okay, yep, you're not supposed to be a black hole, just, you know, selfish, but also we're not the sun, we're like the moon. Okay, it's, it's God is giving to us, and we are giving back to him. And God is pleased, but we're not adding to him. He gets the glory, not us, even as we serve him and even as we worship him. So we, we worship God. That's a way that we reflect it back to him. And this is all of life, everything that we think, everything that we do. Another way that we are to reflect God's glory is about Transformation. We can think of it as even discipleship. But I'm going to say transformation because it's in this passage. Reflecting God's glory changes us. A little bit different from the moon. It doesn't change the moon, but reflecting God's glory, the glory of the sun, it does change us. And I know that for sure because in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we read, it says, And we all, all Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, so it's coming to us, are being transformed into the same image. It's the image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another, to greater and greater glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's as the glory of God shines on us and as we reflect it, it also changes us. And it changes us more and more. So that we become, there's a, there's a type of glory that we do have. And the Bible does talk about this. It's not our own glory, it's a reflected glory. And it transforms us, and it keeps increasing as we grow closer to God. And we get nearer to him. If we think of this in the big picture, this, the story of Scripture that we've been talking about, remember that we, each of us were created in the image of God. I think, and when we were created in the image of God, we were like perfect reflectors. Okay, like a really good mirror. But sin happened. And when sin happened, we, you still retain the image of God, okay? The, the scripture doesn't say, well, it's gone, and nobody has the image of God. We still do, and that's why, you know, murder is a bad thing, because people are, everyone's created in the image of God. But we're not the image of God like we used to be. It's like the mirror is tarnished, the mirror is messed up, it's, it's cake with mud and, and dirt, and it, it, it could reflect, it, maybe it does a little, but not the way it's supposed to. Not the way it really needs to. It's this, this effect of that sin has changed us. We're like a bad mirror covered with dirt. 
But Christ alone is the perfect image of God. It said that in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He is the perfect image. He's like a, this clean mirror, and he is the Lord. And we are changed into Christ's likeness as we reflect him. As we reflect Christ, we become like Christ. And again, I want to point out, this, this is a process. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's not as you become a believer and you are totally cleaned up. Or it's not like you can have some spiritual experience in life or say this uh, magical prayer or have this thing happen to you or take this pill and bam, you are perfect. Nope, you're not going to hit that in this life. But it starts at the moment of being born again, the moment of salvation. When you, when you turn to Christ as your Lord and, and Savior, you trust in him as your substitute. It starts then being, being born again and then it progresses. There might be ups and downs, usually are but more and more into the glory of God. Progressive sanctification. Not complete in this life, but it keeps on going. And Christ-likeness is the goal. That's the end of this whole thing. That's the end of this process. Christ-likeness, and the Bible refers to it as glorification, as kind of the end of this. I mean, a great passage about this is in Romans 8. Last week, we talked about Romans 8, 28. We talked about for uh, <coughs> God works together all things for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then it goes on, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, that glorification has is, is started a little bit, but there's an end of this, the perfect glorification that is future. And that is your goal. That is God's goal for you to make you into the image of Christ. And he is working that in you. He's using different means and through his spirit, through the word of God, through brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to see he works even through painful things. But this is what he has for you. So if there's something in your life that is sinful, something that it's like this wouldn't exist if we didn't live in a fallen world that is not going to be you in eternity so your sin sinful desires the 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 brokenness in this world that is not now your core identity anymore that is still something that's hanging on there but god is is stripping that away so that eventually you are you are a clean mirror again reflecting the the image of god God is in that, that process. That's called sanctification. It's between justified, when God declares you righteous like a judge, and glorification, which is yet future. But this is the end of this. Some have called this the golden chain. Because once you get in this chain of a predestined call, justified, glorified, all these, it's, uh, everyone that is in one of these is part of the next. God doesn't lose some along the way. You know, if you get on, you know, this, this train, you go all the way to the end. And if you don't make it all the way to the end, it means you were never really on the train. You might have been kind of hanging on to the side, flopping along inside the tracks, but you weren't really on the train. Okay? Because if you're on the train, you, your destiny is to be made like Christ. So, might as well start now giving up those sins. Giving up anything that is not like Christ, because you are not going to be hanging on to that forever. And if you think that, oh, no, that's my identity, no, it's not. Your identity is to be made like Christ. That is his goal. 
some other verses. I'll just read these. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. For just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so we shall, in the future, also bear the image of the man of heaven. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 20-21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So even your physical body is going to be transformed and glorified. Anything that's, that's not right about your physical body when you're raised is going to be put back into uh, your perfect mint factory condition, even better. In 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, if you trust that Christ is your Savior, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. As we see him, we're changed <clears throat> by him. And we're changed now, but when he comes back, I mean, that change is going to be complete in the, the, in the twinkle of an eye when he returns. As you struggle with sin in this life, as you struggle with these things, you know, have that hope. Have this, this, this faith to look forward to that God is not finished with you. Uh, he, for some of us, he may have a lot of work to do yet. Uh, yeah, but he's going to keep doing that. To who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So God saved you as you are, but he saves you to change you. Christ is no sin and you will be sinless one day too. And God will work through whatever he needs to. This is part of our, a big part of our message last week. Uh, whatever he needs to to get to this goal, he will use and do in our lives. And that includes hardships. That includes suffering. And I thought it was interesting, I was looking at passages, how often in the same passage it would talk about suffering and it would talk about glory to follow over and over and over in Scripture. In Romans 8, great passage. Romans 8, starting with verse 17. And if children, we're children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Okay? Suffering shouldn't catch you by surprise. He suffered. We're going to suffer with him. In order that, what's the purpose? In order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longings for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's suffering now, but there's going to be glory. This, the world is broken now, but it's going to be set right as God returns and not only glorifies us, but he, but he fixes this whole world and we're in the new creation. So in this moment, no, we, we long and we groan and we go through this along with creation, but there's, there's a future hope that is coming. And we read in, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, similarly, for this light momentary affliction. You think, well, my affliction's not light and it's not momentary. It's kind of heavy and lasting. Well, compare it to eternity, okay? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us, what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
That's magnificent. That's awesome. And we'll read them, but you could also look at 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, and 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Again, it connects trials and, and suffering with, with even fiery trials, with, with, with glory to follow. So what do we need to do? To be transformed? And there's lots we could say about this, but here's a little bit of advice. Keep yourself in the path of God's rays. If, you want, if being, uh, having God's glory hits us, transforms us, keep yourself in the path of those rays. Don't put yourself in the shadows. If you live in the shadows apart from God, if you're hiding from God, or if you're living in the shadows of sin, if you're walking in darkness, then God's love, his, his glory, his magnificence isn't shining on you. And instead then, we're, we're, we're not being transformed. Sin is living in the shadows. Sin is living in the darkness. Like the moon needs to be not blocked by something else. Keep yourself in the path of, of God and, and his rays and his glory. So don't let God's glory be eclipsed. Not by sin. Don't let it be eclipsed even by the good things of this world that sometimes get in the way, that we let become an idol, that we let you know, take up so much of our attention and so much of our time that you're not thinking about God. You're not giving him glory in all things. It's so easy for that to happen and we don't even notice so many times. Don't let there be an eclipse. Times where you don't see the moon, sometimes you know, the earth or something is getting in the way. Don't let things be in the way of, don't let anything get in between you and the Lord's glory. Stand in awe of him. Receive him. Look at him. Now, you, we shouldn't be staring directly at the sun in the sky and burn all your eyes, but we are to be staring at the Son of God. We're to be looking at him, gazing upon him. Now, which is, we, we can't see him with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our heart. This means that you need to be in the word of God. This is where he speaks to us. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit, through his word, speaks to us. This is where we know that we're getting what he actually intends, not just some idea that we have. Of God's glory shines, you know, in, it, there's ways it shines in creation. All creation uh, displays the glory of God. But we look in here and we see the whole picture. We see Jesus Christ. We see what he's like. Spend time in the word of God. It's not just, oh, I better spend time in the Bible. No, this is how your heart gets changed and how you get joy and how you get glory. And we do, you should do it individually. It's good to do it with others. That's why I love studying the Bible with people. I hope you can come to Bible study. That's why we, we worship God and hear from him together as the church. Be in fervent prayer, talking with him. All these, these spiritual disciplines, but don't think of them as just you know, disciplines. They're also things we do that, that put ourselves in the path of his, of his rays of glory. Talk to him. Talk to him in prayer. And we, we praise him. That's another way. Corporate worship, not just individually, but we do this together. And we hear each other sing these things together to the Lord that helps lift up our hearts to him and puts ourselves in the, in the, in the path of his, his rays. Think about the greatness of God. You can meditate on God's word. Meditate on these truths. Don't just hear them and forget about them, but think about them. Think about them. Put them deep into your heart. Have conversations with other people about the great things of God, the deep, awesome things about God. And not 
just the, the, the hard to understand things just for the sake of being hard to understand, but the, the things that really impact your heart and his glory, his beauty, his greatness, his great salvation, his faithfulness to us. So read authors who the Bible is most important, but man, read, read some authors that will lead you to think great things about God. I mentioned some of the authors that have impacted me. Uh, Jerry Bridges, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Erwin Lutzer, Francis Schaeffer, and there's others, but man, people that will go deep and rich into the glory of God, the Puritans, and stay away from sin. Sin always casts a shadow, and then you're walking in darkness. And if you find yourself in darkness, get out of that. Get back into the light. Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look at him are radiant. Say one last thing. Worship, we talk about transformation, which is part of discipleship. But if we're also to reflect the glory of the Lord, this is also about evangelism. Reflecting God's glory shines light into a dark world. Yeah, think about that. You know, at night, uh, the, half of the earth is, is dark, but it's lit up because of the reflected glory. And you know what? A lot of our world, our, the people in the world, are walking in darkness. And God wants to work through us to reflect his glory, his light to them and to the dark world. You know, Jesus, at one point in Scripture, he says that, that he is the light of the world. In another place in Scripture, in John eight twelve, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But another place in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus tells us to let our light shine and says that we are the light of the world. Well, who is it? Well, Jesus is the light of the world like the sun, and we are the light of the world like the moon. You know, we reflect his glory. But you don't hide it. You don't keep it in, in darkness. You don't put it under something. You don't block it. The world needs this light. And we do this. God deserves the glory. This passage, 2 Corinthians 4.15 for it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people. As the gospel goes out and more and more people are saved, they, they embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What is the result? That it may increase thanksgiving, giving praise to him, to the glory of God. So as we evangelize part of it, it gives more glory to the Lord. That's part of how we do it, and God deserves it. Also, evangelism is a natural outflow of our joy in God naturally, we want people to know about the things that bring us joy. And when other people join us in our joy, our joys increase as well. As C.S. Lewis was talking about this, this is part of the reason we, we praise the things we naturally love and we tell people about things. Do you ever find something where you're, you're imploring people about something? And I remember this kind of back in the day, back when TiVo first came out. I remember I had TiVo and I thought it was just the greatest thing. I remember telling people about it. I mean, you should get TiVo because you can record stuff and and I realized, why am I spending all this time? I'm not like paid by TiVo to do this. I mean, I like it, but it's, uh, you know, it's, but there's something about it, something that you like. Sometimes we do this with bands, you know, or, or some music that you find you really enjoy this. You find yourself, you're just telling people about, you know, this, this uh, musician, this band, because it brings you joy and you just want them to know about it. You're not in the band. You're not getting a commission. It just kind of naturally happens. If that's true for these things, 
What's some band you found or some sports team you think is great or this great, you know, new drink or whatever? Or, uh, how much more? So it's just come out of our heart to tell people about the, the love of our life, our first love. If Jesus Christ is your first love, if he is this, this one, you want other people to know about him. That should just happen naturally. And so it's, it's for God. He deserves the glory. There's a sense where it also it, it increases our joy as more people join in with this. Uh, John Ethan Edwards again made a, a quote. He said, In some sense, the most benevolent, generous person in the world sees his own happiness in doing good to others because he places his happiness in their good. His mind is so enlarged as to take them, as it were, into himself. Thus, when they are happy, he feels it. He partakes with them and is happy in their happiness. So the way that God wants us to love our neighbor is so that when they are more happy in the right way, they find their happiness in the Lord and salvation. Not only are they more happy because they're saved and they know the Lord, it makes us more happy. It's, it's a win-win-win all over the place. That's why we should care about evangelism. We should desire this. This is the best way to love people. We want more true worshipers for God. God deserves this, and, and, and knowing and loving God is the best thing for people. But people have this heart problem. They need a new heart. They need a new birth. They need their eyes open so they can see him. If we think about this, we've been talking about the, kind of the big picture, um, creation, fall, redemption. And today we've been talking, too, about the final end result of this, consummation, this end glory. But you can think about, you know, God's whole plan like this, the creation. God created mankind to glorify God by enjoying him. And we said God had this, this great scheme that he invented, that he came up with, that he was going to extend the, the joy that he had in the Trinity to other people. And that as we find our glory in him, he's glorified and we get the joy out of it. This awesome uh, situation that God, uh, system that God created. But sin wrecked it. Sin wrecks us because we doubt God and we think less of him and we cast a shadow on him. And this is the fall. And the Bible says all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The image is tarnished. We don't reflect. We don't find our joy in him. And that's why Jesus Christ came. It's redemption. And believing sinners are redeemed by the cross of Christ. Okay, he suffered worse than any of us. He knows what it is to suffer, and he did it for our salvation, taking our place. And this is all to the praise of his glory, the glory of his grace, and, and everything that he is. But then there's the future aspect as well, sometimes we call it consummation. And when everything is wrapped up, the Lord returns. The Lord makes everything new. The Lord sets everything right in this world. And gives it even an, uh, makes it even better than when it was new. Because now we know God, uh, what it means for, to be saved by him. We know that type of love. In the end, there is increased glory and joy in God forever and ever. This, when we do evangelism, we tell people about Jesus Christ, this is what we are offering people. This is what we're telling people for their eternal destiny. That you will be happy in God forever. And I think with an increasing happiness that keeps on going forever and ever and ever. And that is one destiny. The other destiny that the Bible talks about is described as the lake of fire. That you are separated from God as a source of happiness forever and you receive the just condemnation for your sin. But God is saying, you don't have to have that. 
Instead, you can freely have this other path and have God as the joy and delight and desire of your heart forever and ever and ever. So to tell people about Christ, to implore them to come to Christ, is the most loving thing that you can do for someone. We are offering the greatest possible good for other people. Christianity and evangelism is really about giving people ultimate happiness. Christians are a bunch of killjoys. You can't do this and you can't do that. Um, We're telling you, you can have ultimate happiness forever and ever and ever and ever. Real happiness with no guilt, without all these consequences, forever. That 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 is real love. The world today doesn't know. It talks about love and it talks about hate, but they don't really get it. Real love is helping people find their joy and happiness in the glory of God forever. If you help people towards that, that is the most loving thing that you can do. And if hate is the opposite of love, then that means that real hate is blocking people, hindering them in any way from finding their joy and happiness in the glory of God forever. We want to be people that direct people towards that ultimate happiness. It's for the glory of God and it's for their good. And it increases our joy along the way. Piper said, we are evil because we seek our satisfaction in our own private pleasures, but do not seek it in the good of others. This world is dark. Shine God's light into that darkness. God is the one of infinite glory, infinite brightness, infinite beauty. And you and I, we're called to be the moon, reflect the sun. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise. You are so worthy of it. You are so magnificent, Lord. And we can only capture in our hearts and reflect a a portion of that, Lord God. But work in our hearts more and more to make us better reflectors of you. Work in us to transform us more into your image, to not for our glory, but that so your glory could be reflected for, for your glory, Lord God, which is our enjoyment as well as we serve you and as we love you, and that we are transformed in the process to our destiny to be made like the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And Lord, help us to reflect your glory into a dark and hurting world, that they may join us in this eternity of happiness in you. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know this happiness, that you would work in their heart right now, that you would open the eyes of their heart, and they would realize that even though they have sinned and they have fallen short of the glory of God, and this is a serious thing, you love them so much that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. Open their hearts to this truth that by believing it and turning to you, Lord God, Jesus Christ, that they would be saved. May everything funnel to your glory forever and ever. Amen.